When you dedicate your entire life to your sport, and then it's ripped from your clutches, how do you respond? Welcome back to Closer Mentality. I'm your host, Julia Mellet. Today's guest, Jesse Bradley, found himself gravitating towards sports for the entirety of his childhood. Soccer wasn't my first love when it comes to sports. I grew up on the campus, University of Minnesota, and we lived in an apartment and it was in the parking lot of the football stadium. So football, hockey, basketball, uh, those were the first three that I started watching. And I told my parents, you know, I was in preschool. I want to do this when I'm an adult. Like I want to play pro sports. I knew it early on. And I played soccer, you know, in the field a little bit, you know, a couple times, couple seasons. But then it wasn't until sixth grade and the soccer coach at the time who turned out to be a legend in Minnesota and he, Buzz Lagos is someone who his fingerprints are all over soccer, not just in Minnesota, but around the country. And he was a coach that needed a goalkeeper and he was watching me play basketball. Basketball was my favorite sport. And he saw the potential because of the hand-eye coordination and he started to train me. And so I, I was teachable and it was exciting. We had a great team, great coach, great culture. And so it didn't take long for me to dive in and, and just really enjoy soccer. Soccer recruiting starts in middle and high school. And Bradley saw his division one potential as a goalkeeper, not on the basketball court. For me, it was different. And that word destined is a powerful word. You know, basketball was my dream. And even in high school, I played basketball and soccer. And if I could have played division one, either sport, I think I would have chose basketball. But in terms of talent, I felt like my basketball ceiling was probably division three. And yet soccer, there was so much potential there. And even with goalkeeper, that's the position I played the best. You know, it'd be fun to play in the field. And I played a little defense, you know, sometimes and I'd enjoy it. But uh, ultimately with sport, if you want to keep playing, you got to go with your strengths. And for me, uh, goalkeeping, you know, the part that was the toughest part, and there's a great podcast for it, I think is the battle between the ears and trying to win that victory in the mind and the pressure. And when you fail, how do you respond? And there's so many things anticipating. All of that was a huge part of goalkeeping. And, you know, in sport, it's always a combination. I mean, it's your fitness, your skills, but it's also your mentality. And especially for a goalkeeper, uh, your approach to the psychological part of the game is massive. And I think that's actually something that, again, was a good fit for me. Bradley got started playing serious soccer when he was in middle school. And the offers began coming during the beginning of his high school career. You know, I, I would say it was a little later for me. And there was some, you know, I was playing on different Olympic development teams. So there was some exposure and there were a number of coaches. They would start coming, of course, to our tournaments. And because we played in different tournaments around the country, you know, there was some connection there. But I don't think it really picked up until my junior year. And then, you know, it started to get clearer and stronger. And in terms of recruiting, one of the reasons I chose Dartmouth was because the coach was so personal. And it's a relationship and life's about relationship and the quality of, you know, your experience in sports ties into your relationships with your coach, the other players and some coaches in the recruiting process. They just want to know, hey, what are your grades? You know, what was your SAT? They would just ask some basic questions and it, it wouldn't go as deep. But I felt like I had a friend at Dartmouth, which coach Bobby Clark, who's really a legend from Scotland. He's coached in the U.S. at Stanford and Notre Dame, won a national championship there. And. 
he's coached overseas, but uh, I just felt like I had a friend and I had someone that like I wanted to spend time with, wanted to learn from, someone to be a mentor. He was a goalkeeper as well. So there were a lot of things that stood out and I'm so grateful how it worked out. Growing up in Minnesota, my thought process was I'm gonna go to California, I'm gonna get to the beach, I'm gonna get to the warm weather. And I applied to a lot of California schools, but I ended up going to Dartmouth and New Hampshire, small town New Hampshire, pretty far north, cold winters. And it ultimately wasn't about weather, it's about the relationship and the opportunity, academics, athletics, and that's where it came together. Bradley got to Hanover, New Hampshire and immediately declared a psychology major. He was excited to get started on his curriculum and had a passion for the way that the mind worked. What he didn't expect was that his classwork would transfer into practice. It was uh, exciting to see, you know, some overlap there. I did a project on performance and with athletes, and it was an independent project. It took a semester, and I interviewed different athletes on campus. And one study that, that stood out, the results of my study, and is that there's a bell-shaped curve. And with that bell-shaped curve, that, that picture right there, uh, there's a peak zone for performance. And what I noted is that for a lot of athletes, they were actually doing a little better in practice than in games. And so practice doesn't have as many elements uh, in terms of challenges, obviously. But more than that, it was um, you, you can't come into a game unprepared or you can't come into a game too casual. I mean, you need adrenaline. There's the eustress and the distress. The eustress is the good stress. It's like, all right, here we go. Game on. Let's let's win. Like, let's play together. And, and you need some of that, you know, then distress is when you feel the weight of the world on you and it actually hinders performance. And there's a point where you have to move past just kind of that complacency or lethargy. And then on the other hand, if you get over amped, you know, you can actually hinder your performance. And in, you know, in terms of a soccer goalkeeper, kind of call it white knuckle. It's like when you're so tense and it's like, oh, the ball's coming, the game's on, you know, I, the conference championship's on the line. Like I can't let in a goal. Like you don't have that freedom and that joy and you don't have um, some of the quick responses and you can get in your head and overthink things and you can't play that way as an athlete. So that was, you know, a particular project where I thought I saw the results. And I thought that's so helpful for me. And the challenge for me, because I'm just naturally a little more intense and focused, is how do I scale that back so I'm relaxed enough to play well? And even something like prayer started to help me because, you know, faith-wise, I didn't grow up believing in God. And that's something in college I kind of discovered, this new relationship with God. But that actually put sports in its perspective because I was able to see it for what it is. Like it's not, it doesn't define my identity and I can enjoy it. And that was one of the things, praying before games with some teammates that helped me kind of stay in that zone. Bradley began praying before each game, not for anything specific, but more so for an overall successful and safe next 90 minutes. It wasn't one of those things that was a program or planned. It just kind of came spontaneously and it was optional. It was before a game. Now, a lot of pro sports teams have chaplains and, you know, they have prayer opportunities or NFL games. You see them afterwards on the logo praying. So it's not totally out of the box, but for us, it was new. And a lot of them came out to the game. And, you know, there's all kinds of interesting prayers that happen around sports and, you know, two teams both praying they win, you know, I, it wasn't so much my prayer and I really didn't pray we would win, but I, I, would pray that 
you know, what we had practiced, we would be able to do that well in the game. You know, it's kind of like praying that you put your best foot forward. So sometimes I'd pray for quick reflexes, you know, or sometimes pray for good decision making or, you know, those specific prayers. I think like if you're going to work, you pray, you make good decisions. You pray for the relationships. You pray that, you know, the work of your hands would be blessed and that you would be able to serve other people. And you, you can pray for a lot of things that um, aren't, you know, that you'd win the game. But uh, but a lot of times I think that's probably where people start to drift is we just want to win the game. God help us win the game. But God's interested in so much more than who wins the game. And it's it's the character and it's the relationships. And so and sometimes we just pray for things that weren't related to the game, too, of, you know, maybe there's a stressful exams coming up or someone's hitting a difficult time or discouraged or maybe, you know, the parents are not getting along well or you know sometimes people would share deep things and so it was really a chance to connect grow deeper together and then also uh it did help in terms of being ready for the game and in the right mindset when the big green men's soccer team made the 1990 ncaa tournament bradley was a junior yeah i remember winning in the ncaa tournament my junior year uh it was against vermont and we won a shootout and it was in the snow and it was one of those games where we knew they were a rival. We knew it was going to be crazy. It was going to be intense, you know, thousands of people. And it was the first time we had been in the NCAA tournament in like over 25 years. And so there was a lot of attention on the game. And in a shootout, you know, for those of you who are watching and don't know soccer, it's at the end of the game and there's five shooters and it's just the goalie and the shooter. And the goalie is really at a disadvantage because the goal's big, the shot's coming pretty close and it's expected they're going to make it. So there's a lot of psychology in that of just trying to read the shooters, their body language, where their eyes going, you know, uh, you, you try to anticipate and I was able to stop a couple of shots. We won the shootout. And I just remember those prayers before the game of, you know, quick reflexes and, you know, praying the moment wouldn't be too big. And, and it just felt like I just felt a peace in the shootout when everything else should have been pressure. I just felt relaxed and I felt a peace. And, you know, the Bible says there's a peace that transcends understanding. It guards your heart and your mind. And I would experience that peace in the most heated moments of the game. And I just felt like that was an answer to prayer, that the pressure didn't overwhelm. And it wasn't that white knuckle, but it was like uh, just entering in, felt like I was in the zone. And, uh, and you know, um, this relationship with God, it isn't so much like you use God to enhance your sports. But it's more like God's good and he cares and he cares about everything you're doing and communicating with him. It's part of that relationship. Like with a friend, uh, you want to talk about your life and what you're doing. And with God, I, I feel like there is love and care. And um, I just started to become a more holistic person in that development, you know, in a setting like college where it's academic and it's relational, you know, and obviously with sports, it's athletic and then the spiritual it's not compartmentalized to like, oh, that's one hour, one building or at church or just Sundays. It's like, no, it, it's a relationship with God that his love and um, his help is just available and all sorts of things. And so not in a hopefully a selfish way, but just in a just a joyful way. Bradley and the team won that game in the first round of the tournament and went as far as the third round, defeating Columbia 2-1 before falling to Rutgers 1-0. His success at Dartmouth was more than enough to get him on the radars of professional soccer coaches, even those at international clubs. Uh, you know, I played at Minnesota United, but really looking at the level of play, 
I had the desire to go overseas. Plus, you know, our team junior year, we went to Scotland and we played teams there and we did really well. So we played against, you know, some of the top clubs in Scotland, not their starting 11, but kind of a combination of some people that were part of the team and some younger boys. And we, you know, a team like Aberdeen, which at the time, Aberdeen, Scotland, their first team was phenomenal in Europe. And here we are as college kids. And, you know, we dominated the game, you know, it ended up in a tie, but like, that's a great result against the top club in Europe and, and players our age who have been in the system their entire life. So that was a turning point for me to see both the clubs, the bigger clubs, and then also uh, to know that we could play at that level and then the desire to go overseas and build relationships and meet people and experience the world. And that was, you know, the thought process. And, and I did end up, you know, in Scotland for a while, but then played in Zimbabwe. And the coach that I had in college, Bobby Clark, there were a number of opportunities. You know, he played at Aberdeen. So Aberdeen, Scotland was an opportunity. In England, there was the opportunity to go and try out Queen's Park Rangers and Manchester United. And then in Zimbabwe, he had uh, been there as well. And then, you know, New Zealand was another opportunity. So what a blessing to have a coach that internationally is so connected and going overseas. Of course, we were going to have to try out. We were going to have to get a contract and we were going to have to, you know, make sure that it wasn't going to be any free pass. Let's say that it, it would be earned and the clubs over there wouldn't give you an inch if, if you didn't you know, have the ability. So but it was it was an opportunity to go overseas and play and i'm so grateful that so many americans right now are having that opportunity and that road is so much more common mls has improved a lot which is good but overseas that's where the best soccer is in the world and so being able to go over and and play overseas and then build relationships and the closeness i mean scotland aberdeen scotland and bulawayo zimbabwe are two very different cultures and yet both are very endearing. Scotland is more rugged and, and you know, the winter is more rugged, Aberdeen's in the north. And it's just that culture of like, ah, we'll get through it, you know, and no complaining. It, Scotland, you're not gonna get this big, long, warm hug and this embrace and all this feel good sentiment. It's, but that's where, you know, I felt like, you know, that toughness that's needed to go from, from college to professional, like I learned that toughness in Scotland. And then Zimbabwe, there is that warmth, there's that love, there's that joy, and there's the singing and the dancing and the hospitality. And you feel like, oh, they want me to be here. And uh, being able to play where there's flair and creativity, uh, that's a completely different culture on and off the field. And just to be able to go to two places that were so different and play and enjoy it. I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful for those experiences. Coach Clark connected Bradley with Aberdeen FC who took the American in and treated him to his first Scottish winter. I was kind of naive going to Scotland because I thought, well, we speak English. <laughs> I didn't realize how thick that accent is in some places. And in getting there, it really felt like a different world. And, and I didn't anticipate that. And sometimes in life, when you have certain expectations and then that plays out very differently, that's going to be your biggest adjustment. And going to Scotland, you know, what I appreciated about the mentality there is that let's just take the weather, whatever the weather is that day, you know, whether it's uh, windy, cold, we'd be outside, you know, eight hours a day training and it was freezing cold, wind and rain. And that's a brutal combination and goalkeepers aren't just running around all the time. So 
uh, you know, just just go out in the winter in the Midwest and get really wet and then just stand outside and be outside all day long, you know, in a freezing temperature and, and you'll get a flavor for that. And what I liked about it is uh, in Scotland, it was that we're going to go out, we're going to train, we're going to train hard, we're going to go full effort and the weather's not going to have a say. And I feel like what that helped me is that you can make so many internal decisions and you don't have to worry so much about, oh, what if this happens? What if this doesn't happen? What if this person thinks that? What is, no, you get it right internally and then put your best foot forward. And, and that was so helpful. And also, you know, it's a great day. Ah, it's a great day. And, and you're like, are you, are you seeing the same day I'm saying? Like, you know, if you can't play today, you know, and, and there's just like, we're not going to complain. We're not going to complain. And that is so healthy. That's like, let's get rid of the drama. Let's get rid of the complaining. Let's be grateful. And this is the weather for today. So get your internal setting right and let's go for it. Bradley spent time playing for Aberdeen before moving to the goalkeeper spot with the Highlanders Football Club of the Zimbabwe Premier Soccer League. This was a huge culture shock for him, as Zimbabwe is currently designated as one of the world's, quote, developing countries. When Bradley moved there to play for the Highlanders, a mixture of poverty, malaria, and AIDS met him at the airport. Nevertheless, his time spent in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe, allowed him the opportunity to bond with a culture whose generosity to outsiders surprised him. The Highlanders Football Club in Bulawayo, and going there, you know, signing the contract. We also tutored students on the side. And, you know, the things that stood out to me in Africa were really off the field, uh, on the field. Great guys, great players, incredibly skilled. Uh, sometimes as a goalkeeper, I would prefer the defenders to maybe be a little more cautious in, in Africa. They love skill and flair. And so the fans just light up like a defender instead of just a safe pass might try to nutmeg someone which just kind of put the ball between their legs. And it's like, oh no, don't do that back here. Forward can do that. Don't do that back here. So the systems weren't always there, but it was, it was a lot of fun and incredible athletes loved, um, you know, playing there. But what caught my attention was AIDS. And we had guys on our team, guys on the national team that were you know, early 20s, healthy, you know, some of the best athletes in the country that were dead a couple months later from AIDS. And when you start watching that, all of a sudden, soccer doesn't look so big. And looking around at the poverty, you know, I hadn't experienced poverty before. It's one thing when you uh, read about it. It's another thing when you're there. And you know, even for me being the only white person in so many contexts, and the name is Makiwa for white person, and it's not derogatory, it's just kind of a novelty in a lot of settings. And when I would walk through, you know, just the city, groups of kids would start to follow because, and you just hear the kids, they say, Makiwa, Makiwa. It's like, there's this sighting, there's a white man, Makiwa, Makiwa. And they'd follow and they were so curious and they would just want to you know, touch my hair and I had hair back then they would want to touch my skin they just you know kind of laugh and it, they were just having fun discovering that okay here's a white person what is it like to talk to and what is it like to be white and those experiences um it those were also new to me and the person I went with Tommy Clark he ended up really devoting his life towards AIDS education prevention grassroots soccer 501c3, it's well known. They do great work there. And uh, I'm grateful, but I believe that that passion came out of seeing the pain 
And I think in life, pain can lead to the greatest passion and even purpose. And I saw that with Tommy, that um, the passion and purpose he connected, he went on to med school. So he played soccer for a while and then went on to med school. And now, you know, he's just cared for people in Africa and saved so many lives, you know, from the prevention of AIDS. And I think it came out of that experience. So what we were seeing and experiencing off the field, I think had a far greater impact than what we've been experiencing on the field. In Africa, it was the generosity and the hospitality that stood out to me, the kindness, the warmth, people would, you know, give you anything in, in just not because they had to, because they wanted to. It's like, let's say they didn't have much food, they would bring out the best piece of meat for you. And they would just do that out of love and honor and hospitality. And I thought, you know, hospitality isn't about what what you have in your bank account or your home or how big your home is or how clean your home is. Your hospitality and generosity is about what's in your heart. And I thought, wow, with all we have in America, imagine if we had the same generosity, if we opened up our lives and homes and just cared for people with that unselfish love, how powerful that would be. And so I was going to other places. I was grateful that English was spoken. I started to learn a little into ballet, but not much. And uh, so same language, very different cultures. And I think we can learn so much from each other. And being able to go to different settings, you can pick up what are the strengths in this culture, and then how could I bring that back? Additionally, what he found was a culture that was passionate about its sports. Bradley says that playing at Barbersfield Stadium, which seats around 25,000, was the kind of raucous atmosphere that he thrived in. Yeah, the stadium was packed and then it would be more than packed. So, you know, it would hold thousands, but then really there weren't, there's probably fire codes and how many you're supposed to have in there, but that all gets pushed aside. So um, Barber Fields, it's as many as come is what it felt like. When he suited up for the Highlanders, Bradley felt at home, even thousands of miles away. It was only when the health disaster took him to his knees that the distance back to the United States suddenly became immense and harrowing. An anti-malaria drug prescribed by his physician in the United States began building toxic levels in his body, causing serious symptomology for even the most elite athletic body types. Yeah, it wasn't until many months later, and you take the prescription every week and it builds up toxic levels in my system. And the symptoms weren't noticeable. And then kind of all at once, they started to break out. And the first one was migraine headaches. And I never have headaches. And they were so intense, I couldn't handle any light, any sound. It's like, what's going on? And then double vision. And then started to have crazy dreams. And then I noticed my heart rate would escalate. And it would be 160 beats a minute sitting still. And this combination, it was trouble, like all these symptoms breaking out. And I went to physicians there and they weren't sure what it was. The original doctor in America never mentioned side effects. You know, they weren't thinking about it in Zimbabwe, but they could see that my symptoms were getting worse. And then I, I just didn't have energy, like all my energy was sapped. And so they recommended that I fly back to America. That's what I did. And I started to see doctors and we paid out of pocket, went to Stanford, and that was the first physician who mentioned the drug. There was like 10 possibilities of what the illness could be. And I was supposed to keep taking the drug for another month because that's a prescription. Malaria can be latent and you need to keep taking it. And they would all tell me, you've got to take the drug so you don't get malaria on top of this because you're going to die if that happens. But I prayed about it in that still small voice of, 
yes, it is the drug, it is the side effects, and stop taking the drug. And that went against the doctors, which isn't always the best thing to do. But in this case, it saved my life because I didn't take the drug for another month. And uh, the problems with my heart were the most serious and atrial flutter is another abnormality and skipping beats and heart murmur and pain in the left side of my chest day and night. And there was nothing the cardiologist could do because they couldn't give me a blocker because they didn't know how that would interact with the drug, which was larium and it inhibits the inhibitors of my heart. And my heart didn't have a problem by itself before this at all, but this drug was causing all the problems in my heart and many other parts of my body, not to mention like the panic attacks and waves of depression I never experienced before. It was pretty much across the board. The symptoms were wide ranging, even short-term memory. Like I just couldn't remember, did I do that or did I not do that? Like, that's kind of scary. Like when you brush your teeth and then, okay, you wash your face, you're going to bed and you can't remember if you brushed your teeth or not, you know? And, and they would look and test my, um, my, and just in overall my motor functioning and cognitive functioning. And they're like, this doesn't make any sense. It's like, well, it's another side effect of the drug. So I was just discovering as an athlete, you feel like you're kind of in control, you know, your body, you know, your mind, and then to have it completely out of control, it was scary. And then to not know if I was going to make it through that. And then the 10 years to fully recovery, uh, that was brutal. And so it was the most difficult thing I've ever gone through. And yet some of the best things came out of that too. So I, I believe that, you know, God does his greatest work in the most difficult circumstances. And, and I believe that there's so many redemptive things. We grow the most in the suffering. Like there's the most fruit in the valley. The fruit isn't on the mountaintop, it grows in the valley. And I think that um, out of those experiences, there was a transformation for me. I've mentioned identity. I dropped, identity is like an anchor. You drop it somewhere, you choose where you're gonna set your hope, you know, who are you, what defines you. And I took it out of performance and that's where I landed in God's presence and his love. And there was a security I've never had before that. And it's like, it landed, it hasn't changed. Like that's where my identity is. Cause I can lose soccer, I can lose health, I can lose friends, I can lose money, I can lose a career. I can't have my identity in something I can lose. And that was a big one. Mindset wise, I started to write down 10 things I'm thankful for every day. That habit is continued with gratitude because when you lose a lot, it's easy to overfocus on what you've lost. And I need to remember what I still have. I wanted to have gratitude. I started to chart my progress throughout the year of now I can walk 15 minutes without my heart racing too fast and, you know, with a heart monitor on. And so I need to celebrate that because when you have a long term recovery, a lot of times it feels like you're not improving but I had to chart it to see, actually, I am getting better. It's just very, very, very gradual, but I'm heading in the right direction. You know, sadly, some people didn't make it through that. Some people didn't recover as well physically. Some people didn't recover as well emotionally. So uh, I think that I did need all the health I had. <laughs> you know, things that came out of that, you know, a good night's sleep, drinking enough water, eating healthy, you know, exercise, those are things that ever since that time, I've just continued because I realized health is such a gift and I didn't want to, um, you know, lose any health, you know, going forward. It's like I already it was like as a professional athlete, the ceiling was high in terms of how much health I had. And then once I got sick, the ceiling was really, really low. And, and I didn't want to do anything I could control because that was out of my control. So anything I could control in terms of, you know, those healthy eating choices or exercise, I was going to maximize what I could. And I think that and the doctor said this so many times because I was in such good condition, 
you know, in my 20s, that that helped my body absorb and make it through all the trauma that it went through. So yes, if if I would have um, been in worse shape physically and had those side effects, it, it could have been brutal. You know, there were times where like suicidal thoughts would pop in and I would go back and think, no, wait a second. Like, I'm not going there because I know God loves me and I'm secure in his love and I'm not going to end my life. Life is a gift. But I had to do that work between my ears. And it wasn't just on a suicidal thought. It was with so many things. My mind was tempted to go into a ditch. And I like to say the power of the second thought. You can't control the first thought that comes in, but you get to choose what you do with it. And so often the first thought could be something that's destructive. You know, for some people, that first thought is you're no good. You're not gifted. You're not loved. You're not special. And you can be deflated. Uh, Or the first thought could be the other way. Like you're awesome. You're better than other people. You can get full of yourself. And we don't want to be inflated or deflated. So we have to take those first thoughts and not harbor them and entertain them or believe them. But say, okay, I don't know where that came from, but that thought wasn't, you know, good, noble, right, pure. Like that wasn't a good thought. So I'm going to reject that thought. I'm going to intentionally choose a second thought, which is good, which is positive. And that's what I'm going to think about. And kind of like a goalkeeper, you know, defending the nets, guarding against shots, and then um, just trying to be in that mode of like, okay, not in my house, not in my goal, not on my watch. And I felt like that same goalkeeping was what translated over in terms of the mental work of the recovery and what you believe during the day and what you hold on to those thoughts. They're so powerful. Uh, what happens between your mind or in your mind, between your ears affects every part of your life. And I had to fight and it was fighting a good fight, but I had to fight for my mental health. And part of that was the intentionality and the power of the second thought. The drug called larium is a form of mefloquine and is prescribed for administration once per week for the entirety of a trip to a part of the world known for malaria. Recovering from the drug's physical and emotional anguish took Bradley more than a decade, so long that it forced him to leave soccer permanently. Even decades later, Bradley and his teammates are recovering from their time playing in Zimbabwe. But Bradley's abrupt exodus proved to be more meaningful than he could have expected. It caused introspection, something that he didn't even recognize how badly he needed. If my soccer career would have continued, I would have enjoyed it. I mean, it would have been a lot of good things in life, but I wouldn't have done that deep dive. And I think, at least for me personally, that deep dive has been the most transformative uh, times in my life. And when you really have, um, it's kind of sobering or it's pain that helps us. C.S. Lewis said, you know, there's whispers in the pleasure, but the pain is a megaphone that God uses to rouse the deaf world. And and I believe pain gets our attention and pain is where growth happens. And uh, I wouldn't want anyone to go through what I've gone through, but it also built a compassion for other people who are suffering. And out of that pain, I've just connected with so many people and been able to encourage people who are going through hardships. And so all together, I think, you know, it's like, I, I wouldn't change it actually. And, and man, after five years, I don't think I would have said that after 10, I don't think, I don't know if I would have said it, but now looking back, I, I would say it was so defining for me in my life. And so many good things came out of it that even though the pain was really, you can't measure it because of those good things, 
there was a redemptive peace. And I just say, that's the grace of God. And every day I'm grateful. I just know if I'm in my right mind, if I have physical strength, I am so grateful. That is a gift. Today's a gift. And I want to make the most of the opportunities. And I just haven't taken my health for granted. And um, that's a long answer, but um, it was a big part of my life. Now, Bradley is the lead pastor at Grace Community Church in the greater Seattle, Washington area. Through his recovery, he built a stronger relationship with the Lord. He hasn't fully left soccer yet, though. He currently hosts Faith and Family Nights at the Seattle Sounders games. If you're interested in learning more about Bradley's soccer journey, or just want to invest in finding the Lord in the way he has. Yeah, if anyone wants to connect and keep the conversation going, uh, we just launched that website, jessebradley.org, and all my social media links are there as well. There's some free content, building up hope and sharing more of my story, and I just love to connect with you. You can also find Jesse on Instagram and Twitter at Jesse J. Bradley. While you're on social media, follow Closer Mentality at Closer Mental on both Instagram and Twitter, and Closer Mentality Uncensored on YouTube. Thanks so much for tuning into the 39th episode of Closer Mentality. As always, I'm your host, Julia Mellett. If you or someone you know has an amazing story of athletic excellence or mental health struggles, I'd love to talk with you. Send us a DM on social media and we'll get an interview set up soon. But if not, see you next week.